This is the Real Estate Addicts Podcast, Episode 4, with your hosts, Dan Rubin, HRV Homes. Mark Savatsky, Choose Boston. And Ray Herto, HRV Homes. And joining us today is... D'Artagnan Brown, uh, architect from Embark. So I know everyone here knows that having an architect is obviously an essential member of any developer's team. Before we get too far, can we thank everyone for all of the shares? Oh, oh yeah. yeah, we meant yes. to do that. Yes. I think it's a, yeah. you know... This is our, our fourth episode. Fourth episode. And uh, we're really excited, and we really appreciate everyone kind of pushing it out there and um, helping. Uh, yeah, thanks for promoting and sharing and liking and listening and subscribing. All right, so without further ado. All right, let's get going. From the top. From the top. So yeah, so I mean, everyone knows that having an architect is an essential part of any developer or builder's team. We personally at our business have gone through a number of architects. <laughs> so, you know, the cool thing about Embark is that not only do they offer architectural services, but they offer design services as well. They've been doing projects ranging from gorgeous Victorians in the suburbs, boutique condominium developments, all the way to large-scale commercial developments all across Boston and, and Massachusetts, really. You know, we're we're really proud and, and happy to welcome D'Artagnan and and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Yeah. Great to this be first here. podcast ever, right? My first podcast. Yeah. yeah. Actually so. funny, I recall meeting you guys. You actually came and sat. Oh no. Oh, man. <laughs> Mark's, well. Mark's chintzy little tripod setup just collapsed. <laughs> and we'll be cutting this from the episode. No, there. this is this is hilarious. <laughs> this is actually pretty cool. <laughs> So Mark got a $10 Amazon Prime <laughs> cheesy once you guys, stand thing. Once you guys start getting sponsored, it's then you can buy tripod. some real equipment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> Not Maybe. much of a tripod if it doesn't stay up. I think Modelo might be interested. Does it, <laughs> if anyone right. out there has a connect. Right. <laughs> so you were saying? No, so I was saying I, I still to this day recall meeting you guys. Um, both of you, Dan and Ray, literally showed up to our lobby. <laughs> sat <laughs> Literally sat there, and a receptionist comes well, over there. Well, to be fair, you tried probably. You didn't email. You you didn't respond to my emails or calls. <laughs> we've been busy. Very, so we just showed off one day. We've been busy. Sorry about that. No, but it's been a it's been a great um, great getting to know you guys, yeah. doing a bunch of work together. So I appreciate being here. We appreciate your time. We know you're busy, so you know. Give us a little bit of history on yourself, on how Embark came to be. You know, I know you've kind of lived all over the world as a kid. So, you know, just talk about talk about that. Yeah, so, you know, luckily I've been fortunate enough to grow up overseas. My dad was a banker in the Middle East in the 70s and 80s. Uh, so he was out in Iran, post being in the Navy. Was heading up a bank there, met my mother, who is Indian, never had left India, went there on a posting that her dad got. And they met out there, got married. And within a year, uh, was... In the 70s, fall of the Shah, so we had to quickly evacuate. Left the country. Followed what? I, fall of the Shah in Iran. Oh, okay. Well, I missed that portion of Should the I high school. It? What does yeah. that mean? No, no, no. I just uh, tell me what that means. So, so the, the Shah was running Iran. It was meant to be one of the next uh, superpowers, and everything fell apart in uh, 1977. So a lot of my dad's banker friends all were shot, executed. The government was falling apart. So we quickly fled to India, where we lived for a year while he closed out the bank in Iran. And so it was at that point, uh, we settled in India. How, how old were you? I was like uh, one at the time. Has anyone approached you for movie rights? This sounds like... <laughs> Wait till I get through it. So <laughs> we get so we're in Iran. L literally, everything was just given away to our driver. The 
friends, kept all of our stuff, fled, closed out the bank. Then we moved to Singapore for three years where he continued to run the bank. Younger brother was born there. Then we came to Connecticut for about five years. He was working down in Manhattan. That must have been so boring. It was... Uh, <laughs> Thanks, Mark. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Mark. No, no, living in Connecticut compared yeah, to all that. Like, thanks, Mark. No, it, That's where I'm from. Was from yeah. it, it was a. Uh, it oh, was you're very from different. Are you from Connecticut? Yeah, I'm from the New Haven area. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, we were in Darien. So, oh, so he was yeah. down in Manhattan. Darien is like stable government, nice neighbors, pick it from. Oh. Yeah. And then, uh, then he got a posting in Hong Kong where I went to high school. So I was there for seven years. Oh, that's awesome. I left there in 95 to go to New York for college, upstate New York, RPI. They stayed on until about 2000. We were there for the turnover, the, the Chinese turnover in 1997. Pretty cool. We were out in the docks in the middle where they had, I think, $100 million worth of fireworks going off. So it was a very memorable experience. And I think it's something, you know, as an architect, you, you get to see so much of the world that has really inspired what we're doing today. That's really, really wow. cool. That's super cool. Yeah, that, that, yeah, that got serious pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> Let me take another sip of the Modelo. Do, you, do, you, do your parents live in, like, do they still live overseas or? So now they're in sunny Florida. So they, nice. they lived in California, Connecticut. They were in Boston for a while, all over the world. And then they, they settled in Florida. Cool. So when you left, did, they lose, did your family lose everything or did they get some enough out? In Iran? Yeah, in Iran. Oh, lost everything. Wow. Yeah. It's technically still there under my dad's. One of his best friends built subfloors in their home to hide all of our Persian rugs. Maybe it's rotten away now, but That's if we crazy. ever went back. We have a pretty widespread listener base. <laughs> yeah. There's going to be people <laughs> yeah, in Iran know. just like looking up. Yeah, so if you go and look for, like, I'll, I'll find out the name, but That's yeah, cool. they still keep in touch. They talk every year at Christmas time. That's awesome. You know, 40 plus years later. So you guys have become, I would say, one of, if not the go-to architectural design firms for private developers in the city. And you certainly work for other types of clients. But my first question is, what value do you bring to the table with a private developer? How do you help them achieve their goals? Well, first, thanks for that kind note. That's great to hear. I'd say the, the biggest thing we've kind of been able to establish in the developer world or the multifamily world, which we do a lot of, is just almost been coined as like the developer's architect. So I think what a lot of developers see is very refreshing is day one, not only are we looking at the design, how we can get it through the neighborhood process, but we're really trying to understand what the performa aspect is of putting a deal together. So as we're going through the conceptual design, we can immediately say, okay, this is a building, but accompanied with that, we're going to get you a spreadsheet on all of the back-end data that you need to know for building efficiencies, sellable versus gross, so that you can start to very quickly build a performa, have square footages. You know, we've done thousands and thousands of units. So even if we block them out, we can work with your marketing team to say, hey, we're going to target this type of audience. Because, you know, whether if we're in East Boston, South End, Back Bay, Jamaica Plain, we're doing stuff up in Dover, New Hampshire, down in Plymouth, Mass. They all have different target audiences. And so being able to craft your building to that audience and do it very intelligently in a cost-effective manner. So when you get through the bidding process, you know, by the time you're done with the community process, you have a pretty viable project. And so that's you, really you cool. said square footage no less than four times in the past <laughs> Squ- two every, paragraphs. <laughs> every but square th- foot sells, and that's what makes the deal happen. Bingo. I think we have a wide range of listeners, so just I think it helps to understand that all of our spreadsheets are predicated on square footages. So every square foot in the South End to me is worth thirteen hundred to fifteen hundred dollars a square exactly. foot, and to build that is probably three twenty five to three fifty a square foot right now. So your delta spread a thousand is bingo. Yeah, 
And so I think one of Mark project we worked on, which really got this whole thing started, was the Zero Worcester Square. And from what I recall, and I tell a lot of clients that we meet, a smaller project now for us, you know, being nine units. But the, I think, amazing feat there that we got through as architects starting, I started the firm in 2011, was from what I recall, there were two other developers that tried the site, couldn't get it through approvals. And a lot of it was around dealing with neighborhoods and community. So one of our you know, specialty fortes now is really working through that community process. So we spent a lot of time with the abutters next door. Subsequently, we developed a great relationship with Buddy Christopher, who was the peer architect on that project. So that was kind of a nice byproduct from that. Who is now? Head of IST. The commissioner, commissioner of the building yeah. department. So what we learned in that process is by spending a lot of time hearing the concerns of the abutters next door, and I believe it's two Worcester Square, was the sight lines back to the park. And so, you know, if you're ever in the neighborhood, you walk around and you look at zero Worcester Square, if you go up to the back, the back facade is canted 15 degrees to basically open up sight lines. By just having that revelation moment with these guys, what we were able to do is get a 33-foot extension on the rear, created a, 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 a townhouse. And on the front, working through the Landmarks Commission, which we do a lot you know, with all the different landmarks uh, throughout Boston, is we treated it as a bookend site and we picked up 11 feet on the front. And because we got that 11 feet in depth, 22 feet in width, times the six stories, plus a townhouse on the rear, that was basically the, the profit in the project and made it viable to, to you know, get built. That's awesome. Yeah, that yeah. picks back up on our conversation last week with Mark LaCasse, yep. where it's the zoning code in Boston is malleable. So if you can propose a project that fits and by canting the back of the building and preserving those sight lines, you allowed a much greater sized building, more square feet. Exactly. And uh, we sailed through and it was an incredible success. Yeah. And I think that's where we've come in and we, you know, high level at say 75% of our work is multifamily. Out of that, 90, 95% is for developers and it's all through the zoning process. So I would throw a, a random guess, since 2011, we've probably taken 100 plus projects through the zoning process. How many projects as of right? Probably two. <laughs> one of them was the other one on Chestnut Street. You obviously mentioned that you, you are doing projects up in New Hampshire. Have you done any projects outside of Massachusetts, New England? Have you branched out? I would say one of our coolest, which I've yet to see it built in, in real life, is out in Senegal, Africa. We did a single-family modern home in the downtown city of Dakar. That's cool. From a guy we met through a, a connection of my wife's. Uh, we actually went out to Senegal when we first met. And he said, one day I'd love to open up, uh, build a, a home in Senegal. And he's a banker out of New York. We stayed in touch. And so we did probably a seven, 8,000 square foot modern home there. But most of our work is definitely in greater Boston. Uh, we have some work going on in Connecticut. We're doing our third showroom for Sub-Zero Wolf, the Clark family. Um, so we did theirs out in Milford here in Tide Street, and now we're doing one in um, uh, South Norwalk, Connecticut. The showroom in Tide Street is incredible. Yeah. the Mar Have you been to the, Mar the Marvin? We didn't do that one. <laughs> oh, you didn't do Marvin. <laughs> so we took over. We, we did the second phase of Seven Tide. They had another architect they started with. We met them post that. So we did their Milford location, and then they brought us to do their That's second awesome. phase. That whole building is, is, is incredible. Yeah. Are you licensed to stamp in Africa? <laughs> they don't need a license. <laughs> yeah, what, Just a what, little bit of money. Yeah, what did that, how, did, how does that even work? No, so what we did is we were basically the design architects, okay. and then he hired a local guy to execute. So gotcha. we, we, did all, we actually did all of the um, drawings in metric converted it all, sent it there. They had a local field guy who was licensed, stamped it, built it. 
we actually worked with a guy to fill up a couple shipping containers here of all kitchen, bath, everything products. Wow. Shipped it over Sa- there. Like samples. No, actually, like buy all the color toilets, build all the kitchen. Oh, so they have they literally have all of the materials sitting over there? Right yeah, now? now it's all installed, but basically. Oh, so they finished the project. Yeah, just recently. Oh, nice. Yeah. Are you able to stamp in other states? Yeah, so I'm actually licensed in New Hampshire and Connecticut. So so Massachusetts, from what I understand, Massachusetts, New York, and California are the three toughest states to get your license in. Uh, I got mine back in 2006. And when you do that, you can become a member of what's called NCARB. And that allows you, if you maintain your credits and, and your registration with them, you can get reciprocity in other states. So now that we picked up the job in Connecticut for the showroom for the Sub-Zero Wolf Clark guys, we applied, got the license, and so I can stamp down there. So going back, I guess, a little bit. So you got your license in 2006, started Embark in 2011. So where were you before and what made you kind of decide to go out on your own? And how has that process been? Yeah, so I'd say it's, um, you know, looking back from today, I think I have a lot to be grateful and thankful for. We have an amazing team, which has been a huge driver in how we've gotten here. Because, you know, not wanting to jinx yourself, but just looking at kind of the, maybe if I rewind a bit, you know, the thought of starting a business, it's just because I'd been in a couple of different firms. And for me, the, the outcome five or 10 years ahead, looking ahead, would be very limited if I was working for somebody else. You know, just the nature of the, the industry. And so what I wanted to do was create something from a lot of the, the good values experienced at firms that I was in the past. So I was at a great, at the time, retail commercial firm for the first five years. I moved here in 2000, learned a ton from them. They had an amazing way of looking at office culture, really having people engage. So learned a ton from that. Then I went on to a great multifamily firm that, you know, were really design-driven and had that outreach in the multifamily arena. And so the goal taking that was to, you know, put the best of those together to form Embark. And so, you know, the, when I started Embark, the, the main thing or, or one of the primary drivers was trying to establish a firm that would, would be self-sustaining. Unlike some other firms, and, and not knocking them, but just the way I look at things is, you know, we're not named Brown and Associates. That isn't the goal. The goal embark is to embark on a journey. So D'Artagnan's last name is Brown, just for context. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what happened there. But the, the whole goal was, you know, we're here on a journey together. So be it within the firm, within our, our client groups, dealing with neighborhoods. So to, to be part of the journey was important to me in terms of how we established the firm. So how many people do you have now? So we're about 36, I think, give or take. But, you know, a lot of time has been spent trying to manage or run the firm. The the biggest thing I can do is really see what value everybody adds, knowing what I don't have and, and building the team based on the overall goal of having, you know, just a fantastic outfit. And so, and there, I quickly saw that, you know, I, I could, I had a lot of fun running the neighborhood process, zoning, dealing with the client, networking, bringing in the work. Rob joined in 2013, phenomenal guy that's, it, I owe it to him to us being able to execute multifamily because he, you know, he ran housing for our prior firm. We had a, five years together at a prior, uh, prior firm and, and he, you know, was the guy that we knew could answer the question. So it gave us a little bit of legitimacy as we were heading into these bigger projects that not only could we do the zoning part of it, but we also had the guys that could execute it. Monday to Friday, how many nights are you home with your family for dinner versus out at a community meeting? I would say probably out three nights a week at meetings. All over the city. All over the city. Yeah, because again, so much of it is through the zoning process that we've, there's a handful of guys that have really stepped up and been able to help us out quite a bit. You know, they've alleviated a lot of neighborhoods. 
that maybe now I'm lucky that I don't have to go to all the time, yeah. but, but it, yeah, it's a lot for sure. So I'd say any given week, you know, maybe once a night I'm home. Can you talk a little bit about massing studies? And for those who don't know the term, we look at a piece of property, me, Dan, or I. It's early. We don't quite understand the full potential of the site, but we know its parameters. We know basically a little bit about what the zoning might stipulate and what the other houses on the block look like. At that point, I might call you and ask you to help me understand the potential of the site. Sure. You get those calls a lot. How much does a that lot. cost a client? Give us a range. Sure. I saw one upstairs that's a master plan for a very big yeah. project, confidential, but... We get a lot of calls from guys saying, hey, I'm looking at the site. What can I do? And so between the understanding of what we've seen get approved in neighborhoods, just because we've done, you know, in East Barcelona, I think we have 25, 30 buildings that we've designed. We kind of know what we think we can take through the process. So if you brought us a parcel, you said it's 8,000 square feet, I'll say, okay, you know, I know in this neighborhood we can get an 80% lot coverage. If we go up four stories, it's X amount of square feet. Take out the the inefficiencies of circulation stairs and and get you an overall mass that then I can tell you, you know, you're going to get 22000 of sellable or rentable. And that allows you to go back and say, okay, how much can I pencil in for the deal to offer on, on a you know, purchase price? Can you explain efficiencies again and tell our listeners what a good rule of thumb with regards to efficiency of building is? You said NSF versus GSF. Sure. That might just be alphabet soup for a lot of people listening. No, absolutely. So, so GSF is gross square footage. So when you look at a building, if you think of it as a, a, a box, essentially, if you were to put up, say, in a, a brand new ground up multifamily, call it 50 units, an ideal building is anywhere between 64, 65 feet wide. So it's a center hallway with a condos or apartments on either side by whatever length you can do on the site or you, know, you want to do or break it up into multiple volumes. And when you set that up, it's going to get you, say, 10,000 square feet of plate, just for numbers. So we take high level 85% efficiency. So out of that 10,000, 8,500 would be what your sellable or rentable square footage is. We've been up to like 88%. Sometimes you're down to 82, depending if you're more of a square site. We've done some buildings that are 80 by 80 square, so they become a little bit less efficient. But for us, a typical multifamily, you know, we're looking in that 85% zone. And, and that's why when we get a site, we can quickly run numbers even before we draw anything to have a back of an envelope, okay, based on this site, based on the height, based on the FAR, which we can talk about in a minute. Well, you know, this is what we think you could get from a number of units and number of square feet you can sell. And how much does something like that cost for you to do? So a, a lot of this stuff we do at this point to really just cover costs so hourly or, you know, for us, it's really, we've done enough of them that we can put it together pretty quickly. The second part, I think what I was going to get to is, you know, we're lucky enough to have a lot of clients that are, we've become kind of their go-to architects. So, you know, some guys we have up to 20 or 30 buildings with. And so there we'll just run it back of envelope, get them a number, they'll buy the site and we just turn it into a project. For the guys that are either referred to us, short money, we'd put something together. But for us, it's more important to kind of just get that to, to cover itself so that we can build a relationship with a client. Because, you know, to date, we're still a, literally 100% referral or repeat work. And we owe that to, you know, being able to jump in, get something together. But then, because we can do that expeditiously, clients see that and they're happy to refer us to the other guy. So for us, it's, again, more important, big picture to develop that rather than try to make money off of the concept stage. So that massing study, things that I get from it, certainly... The efficiency of the building, also number of parking spaces we can expect. That's such a big topic when you're going to permit a building. But without that, I think that call is almost more important than the zoning attorney's opinion. Oftentimes, you know, definitely architect who's seen and done a ton of projects in that specific neighborhood and can tell you what to expect 
And that's probably a, con- yeah, yeah. It's a combination of, I would say, your, you know, your architect and your zoning attorney. Kind yeah, of and, I, and I think what we do is because we, we work with, a, you know, say half a dozen great zoning attorneys in Boston, we can bounce ideas off them quickly. You know, we'll know from neighborhoods, okay, you know, in a certain portion of East Boston, you need a one-to-one parking and, you know, we're going to be in at this height so we can run that. But if we're chartering into a new neighborhood, we don't know as well. To pick up a call, I think you guys had Mark Lacassa next week, a, a great guy we go to, just say, hey, this is what we're thinking. He'll weigh in or, you know, call one or two other guys and get us some thoughts. Yeah, sometimes the zoning attorneys will be like, oh, that guy's so-and-so's neighbor. Right. You know, Or I know him or, yeah, exactly. Right. I think as developers, it's important to go through the exercise. Even if you don't win the property, even if you don't end up developing it, you just want to learn and be focused on what those neighborhoods would allow, what sites typically allow, kind of get that experience under your belt and pay for that experience. We talked about this on our first episode. Is it worth taking a guru course or is it worth kind of jumping in and diving in or working with somebody with another experienced developer? And and I would, again, argue that it's more beneficial to any developer to just get the experience any way that they can within reason and and without taking on too much risk. So I I think it's worth your time 100% to learn. What would you say your overall design aesthetic is? Some architects lean more traditional, some lean very modern. Where, Where do you kind of fall in that? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. We've been asked that before. And I think one thing that maybe has helped us grow the way we have is we don't, we don't have a specific design aesthetic. And I think we're pretty deliberate about that. So we've done anything to a very modern intervention in a brownstone. Rob did a fantastic traditional addition to a, a golf club. We have a pretty modern commercial building up going, a 200,000 square foot building going up in Jamaica Plain. And I think it's because we have a varied uh, aesthetic or style, it's allowed us to, to engage with quite a, a large range of clients and something we like. And I think it's also, you know, internally in the office, there's only so many multifamilies one person can work on. So the fact that they can jump from that to maybe a, a you know, traditional brownstone fit out or a very cool, funky, sleek restaurant design, I think keeps everybody motivated and, and their brains working harder. So personal question, which design aesthetic do you like most? I think almost all architects like modern. I would say modern. I mean, I you know I wouldn't say like a harsh contemporary, but definitely a, a, maybe a softer modern. I would say if, if you're going to build next to the Sistine Chapel and you want to do a contemporary build, just make sure the architecture is as good as that of the Sistine Chapel. You right, know? but in a modern take. Exactly. Yeah, and we're seeing, interesting enough, we're seeing a lot of neighborhoods who have done a bunch of, I think, um, interesting work in the South, and we just finished a building on 316 Shaman. And, you know, we first went in with a very traditional building, thinking that's what, in addition to an existing Greek revival, thinking that's what the neighborhood and landmarks would want to see. And it was so refreshingly surprising that they said, no, go modern, because we want to acknowledge what's old and uh, sorry, respect what's old and acknowledge what's new. And for us, that's a fantastic mindset change in in this whole historical notion of, oh, you've got to make it look like it's been there for 200 years. And I think it's so much more exciting to see buildings come up now where you can truly understand what was there in time. And then the modern additions are just fantastic plays tying back into that old architecture. Can we agree that nothing's worse than copy-paste? I call it a ye oldie design, where it, you know, it's built in 2019, but it look, there's right. nothing new about it. I like to look at a building and know that it was built in 2019. Yeah. There's something cutting, something cool. People who just rip off old designs and, and replicate, it's... Yeah, and I think the problem with... I don't with, like it as a developer. Right, I think the problem with that, too, is 
If they were to do it and execute it in a manner that was done 100 years ago, it's very different. But in this day where, you know, developers are paying so much for land, they have to just the reality, you know, manage the construction budget that they can't build that same level of detail that they did in the past. And so you know it's a knockoff. We've actually, we've gone back and forth on that about the differences between a developer's, like a spec build versus a custom home. And how it's all about the numbers for a developer. And, you know, we don't, we can't net with the build costs the way they are, the land costs the way they are, we don't have unlimited budgets. And we got to pick and choose what's going to sell and what's going to cater to the most buyers. Well, this is where I think TV shows actually get it right. Normally, we're knocking on the TV shows, HD, HD TV and, and, you know, flip the house and all that stuff. But I think they get it right when you want to say, I'm going to put a dollar into this room, typically kitchens and baths, because they're going to give me a, a dollar plus back because their idea is generally to fix it up and, and make it new, sell it and get the most amount of money. I want to go back to that expression because I, I think whoever coined that expression, acknowledge what's new and respect what's old, I think they should have gotten paid because I think I want to use that in the future. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Some of these community meetings. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but I think it's I think it's a very good expression and and I can't believe that they said that, but that's that's yeah, and awesome. It's, and it's definitely leading to a lot more interesting, you know, architecture development happening in the city, mm-hmm. which I think is, you know, it's it's good for us. I think we're behind here. When you travel, do you feel the same? I do. But I'd say definitely in the last couple of years we're starting to accelerate and I think you know, been to some fantastic cities across the world. And we've definitely, I'd say we're still held back in height. I don't want to get my ass kicked in. But, you know, I mean, the, the reality is Boston, you know, part, part of, I, I think, the timing too, when the firm was started and how we've been able to grow is just the, the economic cycle we're in, which we're fortunate for. And, I, you know, I think it, knock on wood, will continue. But I think part of the right, <laughs> part of you know what we're seeing in, in a lot of these neighborhoods is, and I, I understand the fatigue and stuff with construction. But if we were to allow a little bit more height, a little bit more density, we can accommodate a little bit more of the housing, and maybe you know hand in hand that may allow for a little bit less development or just you know smarter development because we can get a little bit more height, maybe give a little bit more open space. Have you been to any cities in the States that you feel are doing it right? Well, just to piggyback on what D'Artagnan said before, I think Boston needs to grow up. No pun intended, right? (laughs) We are so limited. We have a housing stock. We're not going to knock down brownstones in the Back Bay or the South End. I would not advocate for that either. So we have limited opportunities and limited land, so we need to allow that kind of height. So I guess Dan's question is a good one. What's a good model for us to follow? So I think recently um, we took a field trip down to Manhattan and was in the West Village, Brooklyn area. And there's just some fantastic architecture going. We're, we're starting a um, pretty exciting project in East Boston on the waterfront, very early stages, still confidential. But we wanted to just show our client what's out there, you know, because Boston really doesn't have that kind of mid-high-rise plethora like New York does. And so we went down, spent two days just doing a big loop down through those areas in New York. And it was just amazing to see the varied architecture and the level of design, how to engage with community, what it did for the public realm. And so, you know, that was a fantastic, we took a ton of those images just to show, (laughs) cracking another beer. It's for you. Oh, thanks, man. (laughs) You know, just like that, that's a great, that's a great starting place of what's happening out there. And I think if more of that comes to Boston, it's going to solve a lot of issues that we're having. Again, to piggyback on Mark's point earlier about Boston needing to to grow up, you know, I, I 100% agree. I mean, if, if Boston, wa- I think for Boston to get to that 
quote unquote next level of a city and compete with the the New Yorks and the Chicagos and the LAs. I mean, they got to kind of loosen the loosen, loosen the, the reins. Yeah. yeah, loosen it up, loosen the reins a little bit, loosen the belt a little bit and and kind of let people be a little more free in terms of what what they're doing. Couldn't agree more. I mean, there's certain areas actually that I, overall areas that sort of got redeveloped, Seaport District, they've been talking about Dot Ave in Southie forever. I don't know where that study went actually. That was from 2016, but those are major undertakings, and I think we're talking about areas where you have two-story, three-story homes, maybe going to four, maybe going to five. Obviously, we're not talking about putting giant skyscrapers next to a, right. a three-family house either, right? No, a lot of it, I think, is smart planned growth. You know, some of these iPod overlays or design guidelines that they're putting in place are great because I think everybody knows the, the Boston zoning code is so outdated, but it's there. It's still there because it's a great tool of taking something through the community process. But I think the flip side of that is we've got to work with the communities to say, okay, we know we're asking for height. You may not like it, we get it, but if we can design it smartly or, or do it in a way that really works with the neighborhood, it's just for the better in terms of being able to manage you know, rental or condo prices we did a great project recently in Brookline on Harvard Street, where we it was through a 40B process, but worked very closely with all of the abutters. Um, Do you all, mind defining, uh, telling? Oh, sure. What, what 40B. 40B. So 40B, the state has a, a program basically called the 40B, where it's used to build affordable using housing units in different neighborhoods. So each neighborhood can have uh, has a cap of up to 10% of their housing stock that can fall under this 40B. And of that 10%, it's either, so say if you build, you know, if the town has a thousand units, a hundred of them can be built under this 40B process and of which 20 to 25%, depending on, on the level of income you're targeting for the uh, affordable renter or buyer becomes affordable units. So is it safe to say that there is a certain amount of affordable housing that each municipality is required to provide? Correct. And if they're still below that threshold, yep. then a 40B project is possible and what the 40B project allows is, is, is to, to usurp is to usurp the local zoning it really focuses on life safety traffic so if you can demonstrate that your design doesn't negatively impact the neighborhood or context with with its in you can bypass zoning you know greatly and so we did a, a project in Brookline again under this process and I think now Brookline is capped at that 10%. It, it just hit. They've achieved that? It, very close. Very made, few municipalities yeah, from what so I know Brooklyn, actually hit. Yeah, Brookline is one. But essentially, you know, where it, this goes back to the concept massing, if you were to do something as of right there, we could get maybe five units, six units. And through the 40B, we got 25 units plus ground floor retail. And, you know, what that allowed us to do, but again, working closely with the abutters is create something that was much bigger than would normally be allowed, but because we work with the, the town and the, the neighbors to get there. I think one other caveat with 40B that's worth noting to anyone who's a developer, who's just, your eyes are lighting up at the notion of, <laughs> for, of throwing away all zoning, um, is they do cap they the do cap. profit. It's 20% and Correct. everything is audited and therefore... There, yeah, there is yeah. a there's definitely an upside limit. Twenty percent of what? I believe it's twenty percent. You're allowed to make twenty percent profit. I'm not sure what the denominator in. Yeah, that. there's twenty percent profit, and there there's some. Um, you know, you can have developer fees, GC fees, mm. management so, fees. I've heard that certain developers use 40B developments as leverage within certain municipalities to get non 40B 
projects approved. We haven't really experienced that yet. Okay. We haven't done, I mean, we've done a couple. It would make sense though. But, but yeah. I can see that. But, but then again, that definitely could happen. Just roll into the building department. Here's my 40B plan. <laughs> yeah, but By the see, way, here's a nice conservative six unit plan. Project, right? yeah. but, I, but I'd say the, the guys that are going to go after the 40B, it's a pretty rigorous process through, there's two groups that or authorities that do mass housing partnership. The site has to qualify. So it's not like you can buy a site in the middle of Brookline, away from public transportation, away from a downtown. That won't qualify for the site. So the sites that we're working on now are transit-oriented. They're in a, in a denser commercial district. So the idea is that you, know, you need less cars, for example, because you can be right there, walk to the train, walk to the coffee shop. And so there's like half a dozen or more criteria points that allows the site to become eligible before you can even get into the 40B. Can we pivot to uh, construction costs? Sure. I know you're not a chief estimator. Right. And, uh, <laughs> we always uh, avoid this question when clients ask us, but... But to be a successful architect for for-profit, multifamily, yeah. residential, or for a developer, yeah. you do need to have some understanding. And so sure. what are the different triggers and what do you think is the most impactful when you're thinking of your design? How often are you considering cost? And is it facade? Is it foundation? Is it um, structural? Four yeah. over one. Um, can you talk a little about yeah, that? Yeah, sure. It's, I think it's a little bit of all of that. And um, this is where I think our team's been fantastic because as we start the design, right away, um, Rob or Ryan, uh, two guys here that really manage a lot of the multifamily, will throw together an outline spec that we can just pull in a GC and start to run numbers with. We kind of generally know, and it, it varies market to market. So, you know, stuff we're building up in Dover, New Hampshire, uh, about 140 units. I think we're at like 175 a foot. Same building in the city here in Southie we did is more like 220 a foot. Um, so definitely is market varied. Um, but b- between the different types of constructions, we can kind of guesstimate at that based on what we have just from past projects. You know, going back to the whole notion of being a developer's architect is we really try to work the system so that everything we're designing or establishing as a basis point of running the job is based on the understanding of a cost. And, and that's, I think, what a, a lot of clients look at us and go say, oh, sh- you know, great, this isn't just, you know, beautiful images, whatever. They're really cost conscious because we want to get it built. And, you know, our goal is, I think we have a pretty high success rate of projects that we design to actually getting built. Do you have any examples of value engineering approaches or ways that you approach design deliberately with the idea of efficiencies in terms of cost? Yeah, I'd say a lot of the multifamily, when we're designing it, you know, if, if we can stay away from garage, basement, unless we're in a, in a very expensive neighborhood and the land cost is so high that you really need to get parking underground, a lot of our stuff is four or one podium. Wood frame above, steel metal deck, parking at grade with lobby, maybe some residential amenities, package mail rooms. But that's like a pretty efficient building to build. And then it's just how you skin, you know, skin the building and ways of coming around that. So to kind of, I guess, get in a little more details, since you offer design services as well. In addition, like interior design. Yeah, interior yes, design yep, in addition do. to the architectural services. Correct. So I guess when did that come about? And because that's, I mean... It's a pretty, I guess, more unique to offer to developers that services because, I mean, yeah. a lot of developers don't, don't yeah, know design. So, I mean, how many of your developers actually leverage your design services in addition to your architectural services? Is that a profit center for Embark? Hopefully it'll become one. <laughs> <laughs> because, we're, you know, we've been fortunate enough. Michelle joined us a couple of years ago. She leads up the interiors design. Nicole joined us uh, about a year and a half ago, came from a great firm. For us, it's definitely been 
I'd say a nice portion of the business that's growing quite well. And I think it's, you know, again, I owe it to them for, you know, they just come up with these gorgeous designs that have now allowed us to kind of create a name for ourselves as an interior design firm in addition to an architectural firm. But I think the flexibility that we have within it is we can work on a really custom single family, get down to like beyond the doorknobs, like the pillow details and because that's stuff they know how to do, you know, way over my head. But um and then, you know, at the same time, they can flip the switch and work with, you know, work with you guys and say, hey, let's spend a week and just put together a great package and, you know, get something aesthetically nice and move on. Going back, how many of your multi-unit developers take advantage of those design services? I'd probably say 75 to 80%. That's, that's Dan, great. do you pick your own finishes? We do. Do you feel that some of the bigger guys are doing a lot of copy-paste still? I'd say the bigger di- guys aren't. Oh, they're not? No, the smaller because, uh, guys. Yeah, the smaller guys do. The bigger guys, I think what, what we're seeing as architects and why the interior design is so important to this and, and with Michelle, Nicole, and we're, again, adding a couple more people growing that team, is there's, you know, even though earlier we talked about the limited housing supply, there is still a lot of, I'd say, predominantly rental stuff coming up. And so to spend a little time, what developers are seeing is to have us engage in a little bit of time to put together a really nice you know, nicely designed package helps set their buildings apart from other buildings. So, you know, we've all seen rental prices go up through the roof, pretty expensive to rent. I don't know how a lot of people do it. But if you were to visit two buildings and, you know, one just was more thoughtfully put together on the interior finishes where you're going to be living, sleeping, breathing every day, those tend to go first, right? And so I think developers recognize that and and that's why we're doing, you know, more of that now. If you don't enjoy doing it and you can offer that service, it's a huge weight off of a developer's back. And it helps them set themselves apart. Sets themselves apart. And for us, we, we enjoy it because it kind of completes the story from what we've created as a building, seeing it through, you know, through all the finishes and the aesthetics. Have you had developers kind of gone rogue on some of your designs? Absolutely. So, <laughs> do you provide an affidavit for yeah. such a building? Right. You hold withhold their seal. No, so if you look at our website, some of the buildings where you don't see interior shots, <laughs> that's where we've deliberately left them out. What about exterior? Obviously, no, some, some buildings, buildings have to go through the design review process, but sure. have you seen people just kind of just have you have you had clients butcher, no, we, butcher yeah. projects? Yeah, before? I think you know that's just part of the game. You do. Yeah. You, you will always get a, a range of stuff. I'd say most of it. You know, knock on wood, 95, 98% is built to what is designed. Give us an example of the worst one. No, I don't know if I want to say publicly. <laughs> you don't have to mention the name. No, so we did um, a project out in Chestnut Hill that I think through self-managing, you know, the, the type of material, the quality of material was just substituted. And again, our range of engagement will vary depending on a developer builder versus a developer who goes out to bid and, and sometimes we used to do more, we're doing less of it now. If we just get developers that also build and, and want a quick permit set there, that they're more akin to being the guys that will kind of make their decisions in the field. Does it piss you off? No, I get it. So again, we don't we don't we don't have, you know, I'd say say no ego at all. I mean, it is what it is. At the end of the day, we understand they're in a business, they're gonna make money. You know, sometimes it's a little bit tough if your name's behind it, but you know, we get it that they got to build to a number and you hope the next time around you can have a little bit more influence and do it right. So circling back to your beginnings and obviously your personal history of coming to the States and starting this business, can you just give us a little bit more about some of the challenges of starting the business and then seeing the business grow and becoming so successful? 
some of the challenges with dealing with growth and, and how you handle scale? Yeah, no, that's a good question. So again, we started back in 2011 officially. You know, it started where I was literally bootstrapping in at night. Very fortunate to have a super supportive wife who saw maybe how unhappy I was at where I was. And she said, you just got to do it. And I said, oh, you know, we had a newborn, a little bit tough. And she's like, it doesn't matter. It's now or never. Just do it. You know, luckily she got a stable job, got us the health insurance so I could, you know, not make any money for the first couple of years. And, and it really was that. And so for me, it was really, I think it was more important to build relationships with clients, invest back into the company. You know, any architecture firm, which I think a lot of people don't realize, is there's so much money that goes into starting up the practice between all of the software licenses, insurances, all that. And because of, you know, luckily the situation I was in, you know, my wife, we, I had no pressure of bringing money home. And I think that allowed me to invest in the firm, bring great tools, allow us to do better work. And, and that's how we all started. And I think the biggest thing with growth that, you know, I'd say we're experiencing is, you know, who to say no to. It's really tough because... Um, is that from a client base or employee base or both? I'd say mainly client base. I mean, employee, it's hard, it's hard to find, you know, I mean, every architecture firm is looking to hire great people. And I could talk on hours for that. But <laughs> I'd say from a, a client perspective, because it, again, we're, it's all referred work. My biggest fear is if you say no to one guy that's, you know, spent time reaching out and connecting you, you know, next time he'll call another guy. And so for us, it's really been this process of, of trying to now that I'd say we have a decent portfolio and, and establish a, a bit of a name, trying to gear towards clients that see what value add we can bring as architects and realize that, you know, we're more of a team player rather than just a service that gets them a permit. Right. And obviously, if you say yes to everybody, you're going to stretch yourself too thin. Yeah, exactly. And I, so for us now, you know, in the last year or two, we've been pretty deliberate about who we're working with to really further the mission, you know, keep upping the notch uh, in terms of, how, you know, how we're perceived as a design firm in, in Boston. And so, you know, it's taking a little bit of discipline to turn down work. You do turn down work. No, unfortunately, we have to. Yeah, but, but I'd say turn down, but we also love to refer. So, you know, if we're not the right fit for the job or unfortunately it's too small for us now, you know, I have a couple of great guys that I'd say, hey, go call my buddy at this firm. They, you know, would be great at dealing with. So we got into good times because so you don't care. <laughs> <laughs> that's why you showed up in the lobby. <laughs> exactly. Can't, can't turn sound, can't turn down somebody that's there physically, right? <laughs> we would have had our sad puppy eyes. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right, let's introduce a quick game. This is called Overrated, Underrated. We should credit this to, I heard this from Tyler Cowen's podcast, who's an economist. Oh, um, awesome. Yeah. We'll provide, we'll throw out a term, product, um, a concept, and you tell us, D'Artagnan, whether you think it's overrated or underrated. Sure. So I'll start it out. Hardy plank siding. <laughs> I'd say overrated. How come? It's just being used so much. I get it. I understand why. And we'd love to see, you know, we, there's some other products coming out that can maybe get the same price point, but you just see it going up everywhere. I'd say it's almost become the vinyl siding of like the 80s and 90s. <laughs> I agree. Next one, pocket doors. Underrated if it's done well. So pocket doors are fantastic, especially in, you know, we do a lot of brownstone, probably done 40 or 50 buildings throughout the South End Back Bay. And the pocket doors are fantastic, especially for like little powder rooms where you don't have that swing space, but you have to get a good hardware spec to make sure it operates right. I think you can also say appropriately rated. So underrated. <laughs> oh, okay, got it. Oh. Appropriately rated. Okay. Paneled appliances. Ooh. Appropriately rated. 
And I'd say, it, again, it depends on the design aesthetic we're going after, right? So, you know, if we're doing a traditional fit out for a homeowner that really wants that kind of full panel look, it's phenomenal. If we're doing a, a modern South End condo and you want that sleek look, then, you know, stainless or we're getting into some other finishes, black stainless, you know, would be the way to go. Open concept. And I'll say that because everything's open concept. I know it's popular. But what about those rooms where you have a little bit of a wall in between and maybe those columns? Or do you think we'll see? see I don't think I'd ever Greek, do columns Greek in a room. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I would never do. I would say it's still. Ray would. I would still say it's. Um, they do it in New Hampshire, so I don't know. No. So we, we, I don't think we'd ever do that. But I'd say it's, it's appropriate. You know, it's for, um, I, I think what we're seeing is in terms of the open concept, we're seeing a, a massive shift into much larger kitchens because they are truly the hubs of where people hang out. So in a lot of one bedrooms, developers have been fine with just a living room and a great size kitchen with a magnificent island that doubles as the dining room. You know, so that's where we've seen that kind of trend go. Micro housing. Underrated. And so we're actually looking at a couple of projects now. I think it's a phenomenal way to get to the density that the city is so desperately needing to build and fill as long as you do that cognizantly about how people are going to live in that building. And so the, the BPDA just actually put out that compact living policy, and we were lucky enough to be one of the firms that was called in to help critique and weigh in and give thoughts on, on shaping that policy. You know, I think that's going to be a fantastic solution to meeting a lot of the, the housing needs. Transit-oriented development. I would say underrated. And I think a lot of that ties back to what we're seeing as a, really a shift in who the target audience is for a lot of these units are the younger, you know, it, it's very often we go in and they say, oh, who's your audience? You know, millennials, there are all these millennials moving to Boston, new, you know, new jobs being created. But the reality is a lot of them to even live in the city and afford the rents we're doing, they can't afford a car. And so by having the true transit oriented, if it's done right, you don't need the parking, you know, you rely on the Uber, you rely on the bike or the T, I think it's a fantastic approach to solving the congestion issues we have with traffic. One last one, maybe? This is fun. I think we should keep going. Okay. <laughs> yeah, keep it good. Keep it going. I'm, I'm just it's throwing, more beneficial to us. Yes, yes. yes. I'm just taking notes. free advice here. I'm just throwing darts for fun. Oh, I thought so. we're billing an hour for this. <laughs> you asked us how we do our... <laughs> Bill it to HRV Homes right. and not Real Estate Addicts Podcast. Right, Thank I'm you. responsible for... <laughs> you brought the beer. Yeah. So, wallpaper. Oh, underrated. Ooh, I that was quick. Hard, yeah. Real hard, hardwood. Like, uh, sorry. I kind of thought that would be the answer. Pre-finished hardwood floor or? Infield finish if you can do it. Pre-finish, I get it. it. It goes up well for multifamily. It's got to be done well and protected well post-install because we've seen jobs where they've had to come and take 25% of it out because the RAM board protection isn't down. Appliances get moved in. They get dragged, screwed up, and then it's, it looks worse by the time you're done patching. Body jets in master bath showers. Overrated. Yes. <laughs> That's all for look and them. feel and sale. Yeah. Follow up, steam. Steam showers. Underrated. Underrated. What about difficult to build. I, I actually difficult have a policy. To build, but I don't like when buyers ask for steam showers. They're callbacks. Yeah. I would say I would do it in a direct homeowner project and not a condo. What about handheld? Underrated. Handheld, actually, if it was up to me, and this is just a pet peeve of mine, I would never put in bathtubs. I would do everything handheld. We put in bathtubs in multifam because, oh, you have a baby, you got to shower the baby. I would much rather have a handheld with a nice portable tub basin that I've had two kids, you had to wash them, put them in the tub, hose it down with a handheld. You go to clean the shower, you hose it down. 
Tubs always, you know, how, how many times have you used a tub? We have a great six-foot tub. I've used it, I think, once in seven years. So actually, follow-up, freestanding tub versus stand-up shower. Stand-up shower. You, that's not the game. You just made a pro Oh, game. that's how <laughs> you made it up. <laughs> so lightning round. <laughs> what was this? My lightning round. <laughs> Gets better every year or every episode. Every podcast. What's one piece of advice that someone gave you throughout your career that you want to impart on our listeners? I would say that the biggest thing is don't underestimate your team and don't underestimate the value of who you work with. What's one design element you'd like to see more and one that you'd never like to see again? I'd say one that we'd love to see less of is kind of the, and I think as, as a firm we're trying to move away from this, is that kind of hardy plank, trimmed out window, pretty traditional stuff that you see going up in a lot of neighborhoods. And so we're, we're deliberately trying to move away from those projects, doing just more impactful stuff, because I think a lot of, a lot of people just want to put up a building, you know, and so if, we, if everybody saw less of that, it would be fantastic. Yeah, and so I, th- I think what would, what, what would I with? love to see yeah. is, is just a wider use of just higher quality building materials and, and having that be able to actually fold into a building, into, into, the, sorry, into the budget. You know, like I've seen some of, um, you know, just great buildings going up around the city that have phenomenal brickwork detailing and stuff that's going to be around for the next 100, 200 years that we don't do enough of. What would you say is the general percentage split between developers that you'll design a plan or your firm will design a plan and they just say, yep, layouts look good versus folks maybe like Dan that are tweaking constantly? I'd say probably 80 to 85% go off of our plans in the other 15 to 20 adjusted in the field. And, and it will vary by the project type. So some of the bigger work we're doing now, you know, we have stuff that are two, 300 unit stuff. And so before we get to even a permit set, you know, post approvals, we're, we're trying to put together a set to get to ISD. We'll actually work with agents and dissect each unit down to, you know, single unit per page, work through the entire layout, where the door is swinging. It's an involved couple week process. But we do that because, you know, if we're doing 150 units, we may have 15 unique types. And then we're going to stack it, you know, for 10 floors, whatever it is. We'll, we'll spend a lot of time going through that floor plan and, you know, examining really every square inch of it. And, and those type of projects that you have that liberty of doing it, those get built, you know, as you've designed. Last question. And this is something that we've asked guests before, and it's a nod to Guy Raz from How I Built This. But what percent of your success would you attribute to hard work versus luck? Great question. I think um, I think it would probably be 80-20. I think you definitely create your own luck, and a lot of it is hard work, but people get breaks in life. And um, you know, I was lucky to meet my wife. That that was definitely luck. But having her support and the willingness to do the hard work has, you know, let us come where we are. So we want to thank everybody. Thank you, D'Artagnan, for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Thanks to everyone for rating, reviewing, for sharing. Subscribe to the podcast, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, etc. Send us your thoughts and ideas on future topics, guests, uh, any feedback. We'd love it. And for those of you that are looking for an architect, D'Artagnan, how do they get in touch with you? The best way is probably through a website. There's a a reach a section, info at embarkstudio.com. All right. Well, thanks, guys. We'll Thank see you. you on the next Thank one. Thank you all. Thanks Appreciate it. Bye. Bye.